With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In South Africa, one place to look for societal change is in one of the country's obsessions, rugby. The national team has its first black captain, but the shifts within the sport's highest ranks may come at the cost of the local game. And ever since the first single from The Beatles dropped on the same day as the first James Bond film, the two franchises' fates have continually crossed paths. We speak to an author who examines what the pairing says about Britishness. But first... I say we, all of us together, we are leading everyone in the polls by a lot, more than ever before. Over the past few years, I've been to maybe a dozen Donald Trump rallies. One I attended in Michigan earlier this month followed the script. So many of you have asked me, where can you purchase our new book, Our Journey Together? The music, the advertisements, the fans. Trump is it. He's the guy. He's the spark. He started everything and he's getting everybody ignited, getting excited to get our country back. And of course, a steady stream of candidates pledging their fealty to the guy whose name is on the marquee. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am freshman Congresswoman Lisa McLean, and I ran because President Trump was making this country great again. These rallies keep Trump's hold on the Republican Party, tying candidates to him, juicing up fans, and helping to raise money. In this, the latest episode in our midterm series looking at power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're asking how much control Donald Trump has over the GOP and whether he helps or hurts Republican chances of victory. Between now and Election Day, we're going to different House districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Michigan's 3rd District. Trump's endorsement vaunted a little-known candidate over a Republican incumbent in the primary. But will it help in a general election in a district that Joe Biden won by nine points? Michigan's 3rd District is in the state's southwest. It covers the cities of Grand Rapids and Muskegon and the rural areas in between. A couple of weeks ago, the Republican candidate for this district, John Gibbs, held a rally here with his former boss, Ben Carson, who was one of Trump's cabinet secretaries. It was a much more sedate affair than the former president's. Um, and I think um, I'm optimistic and I, I'm glad to say we look really good for November. Um, I think that we're not going to let we're not going to let 
our district be represented by a Democrat for the first time in, what, 40-something years? I don't even know what the exact number is. But, but it's been a lively campaign. The incumbent, Peter Meyer, won the district in 2020 by six points. But after the January 6th riots, he was one of the few Republican House members who voted to impeach Trump. He lost the primary to Gibbs by four points. Um, I always say that November is not really going to be Democrat versus Republican. It's going to be more crazy versus normal. That's what we're really looking at. This is about, uh, do you want to be forced to buy an electric car? Uh, Do you want to pay $7 a gallon for gas? Is there a male and female, or is there 57 genders? I mean, this is just, we've gone into total outer space of craziness right now. Trump has endorsed just over 200 candidates this cycle. In open races, they won their primaries 90% of the time. Not all of that can be attributed to his endorsement. The former president often picks late when there's a clear frontrunner. But it's still a pretty impressive record and can help distinguish candidates in a crowded field. And for some of Gibbs' supporters of the rally, the endorsement is a selling point. Well, the endorsement is good in my mind. Gibbs is a guy that has a strong Christian faith. He's worked in D.C. He's got a great agenda. But for others, even strong partisans who had come to a campaign event, the endorsement really didn't seem to matter that much. Let me ask, you're wearing a John Gibbs for Congress T-shirt. How important was President Trump's endorsement of him in getting your support for him? Um, You know, I'm not sure that it was that important to me. I think that for me, it was it what he what John stands for. And speaking um, before the rally, Gibbs, the House candidate, said he thinks Trump will remain both kingmaker and king. He's going to be in that position as long as he wants it, I believe, that kind of that leadership position and pace-setting position of, our, of the party. Since winning their primaries, some Trump-endorsed candidates have tried to distance themselves from the former president to appeal to more moderate voters in the general election. Two days after winning his primary, Don Bolduc, a Republican running for Senate in New Hampshire, went on Fox News and reversed his stated belief that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, And I've done a lot of research on this, and I have come to the conclusion, and I want to be definitive on this. The election was not stolen. Was there fraud? Yes. But in Michigan, Gibbs is sticking to his guns. And tell me about your views of the 2020 election. You feel the election that Donald Trump actually won. Why is that? When you look at re-election, a president running for re-election, if you get more votes than you got the first time, you always win. And he got a huge increase in votes. I just, I, it's very difficult to fathom. An endorsement might help get the Republican base out, but that alone probably won't be enough to win a general election. Because although about 80% of Republicans nationally approve of Trump, only around 40% of registered voters do. When I was in Michigan, I spoke to the Democrat who's running against John Gibbs, uh, Hillary Shulton. Idris Kaloon is the Economist Washington bureau chief. And although our conversation was about abortion, we talked quite a bit about the general direction of the country and specifically what has gone on with the Republican Party. Usually what I hear about from a lot of people is that they are um, they feel deeply ill at ease with the direction of the country. Um, They feel that we are headed in too much of an extreme direction and life is hard for them. 
unlike Gibbs, who's seen as the Trumpist alternative to Peter Meyer, who was the Republican incumbent who voted to impeach Donald Trump, Shulton is not positioning herself as a left-wing candidate, but rather as a moderate. You know, I think people understand uh, in, in this district, you know, they see me as a very common sense, practical, solution-oriented mom of two kids. It might be a successful message. The Economist midterm model currently gives John Gibbs just a 20% chance of victory. And that narrative isn't unusual across the country. Once we get into the general election, as we are now, the Trump-endorsed candidates are a bit extreme and I think are underperforming. And I think you'd expect to underperform generic Republican. I think you see that most pronouncedly in the Senate, where we have more frequent opinion polls. Nationally, many Trump-endorsed Republican candidates are struggling. So in the Senate, you know, we see people like Herschel Walker in Georgia and Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania have been running fairly substandard campaigns and are several points behind what you would expect a Republican to be in those states. And I think that is a probably as good a measure as any of how much the Trump endorsement can hinder general election prospects in places where Democrats and Republicans are fairly evenly split. That's an important distinction. Trump's endorsement may help in Republican primaries, but it's not clear that it does the same in a contested general election. A lot of Republicans feel that high gas prices and rampant inflation should put their party in a better position for the midterms. You know, the unfortunate thing is we've got a set of issues right now defining the election for the most part, save abortion policy, that should be unifying pretty much everyone within our coalition. Jason Rowe is a Republican strategist in Michigan. He was the executive director of the party, but left after criticizing Trump. The party's prospects still frustrate him. I mean, the inflation, the gas prices, the things that are going on there is, affects everyone in our coalition, and, and we have real advantages politically. But we're spending time talking about 2020 elections and forensic audits and cheating and relitigating, you know, if Trump is the leader of our party or not. And we're taking away the opportunity that we have in front of us. More Republicans may come to agree if the losses of Trump as candidates like Walker and Oz cost the GOP control of either chamber of Congress. But that doesn't mean Trump will just fade away. You've got to pay attention to this guy's ego. The idea that he would be in control of one of the two major political parties in the most powerful nation in the world and that he would go quietly into the good night is insane. <laughs> of course he's not giving up control. But what would be the motivation if you're Donald Trump? You have this very powerful vehicle at your disposal and you can use it to fight your enemies, fight law enforcement, fight prosecutors, fight political battles. Why would you give up control of that? And even if he goes, he's changed the party. His heirs apparent, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, are basically running to be post-Trump Trumpists. Idris again. I do not think that the Republican Party is going to snap back to 2012 Mitt Romneyism. I think that all the people who are contenders to be in charge of the party are people like Ron DeSantis. His entire appeal is that he is still incredibly pugilistic, still incredibly hostile to the media. He has all the right enemies, but he he manages to conduct himself in a way that is less besotted with scandal as Donald Trump. But for those at the rally, decked out in Trump t-shirts, 
That seems a distant possibility. Well, it says Trump 2024. And I would like to, I would like to cross that out and put now. I would. I would. He will be back. For more coverage of America's upcoming elections, listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. This week, Idris and I joined John Priddo to go deeper into the question of candidate quality. That episode comes out on Friday. You can also find all The Economist midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world and a big mystery. I'm Su Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime and the lessons he learned. Now he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist wherever you get your podcasts. A few weeks ago, I went to Paul for a loud and very special event. Every year, the town in the South African winelands hosts what it claims is the biggest game of school rugby anywhere in the world. This is my first time here. I've never seen anything like it. In many ways, the event is reminiscent of college football games in the American South, but the scene is perfectly South African. John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent. As I was walking around the stadium, trying to dodge alumni who had been drinking since 8am, I spoke to people about what rugby meant to them. One man who was there to support his grandson explained it to me really quite simply. Rugby comes first in part. As the conversation progressed, we eventually got to talking about diversity in rugby. Has these games become kind of more diverse over, over time or...? Not really, not really. It's like... Uh, they take a colored out, you know, to put an injured white guy in the... The entire scene, with players of all races on the pitch, but with some ambivalence in the stands, speaks to something bigger about race, rugby and South Africa. What do you mean by that? In South Africa, rugby has long been associated with white Afrikaners, the South Africans of Dutch and mostly Huguenot descent. They took to the game when it was brought by English public school types to the then Cape Colony in the 19th century. And under colonial rule and then under apartheid, the sport, but also the national team, known as the Springboks, became symbols of white South Africa's resistance to change. Nelson Mandela once put it well. He said rugby was the application of apartheid in the sports field. And today, Sia Khaleesi, who's the current South African captain and the first black player to wear the armband, he has said that for so long, the Springbok emblem, which is this leaping antelope, 
represented only a small part of the country and how it felt about themselves. That rugby was a sport for real men, white Afrikaners, whereas blacks, they were soccer players. Now, in South Africa in 2022, such attitudes are thankfully largely consigned to the past. But I reckon the sport is still very much a symbol of how racial progress is very real, but also uneven. How do you mean? What, what is the symbolism there? If outsiders think of South Africa and rugby, they tend to cast their minds back to 1995 when the freshly elected Nelson Mandela hosted the World Cup in South Africa. Our national teams now enjoy the support of all South Africans. This is the People think of Mandela as the prisoner, the freedom fighter, but he was also an incredibly canny politician. He embraced the Springboks as part of a bid to woo recalcitrant whites, whites that had not reconciled themselves to the democratic era. Back it comes to you, Sven de Vestes, and a little knock forward. But that's it! South Africa have won the World Cup! And in a spur-of-the-moment genius decision, on the morning of the final, he put on the green and gold team jersey and eventually joined the victorious captain, Francois Pinar, on the field. There it is, Francois Pinar, and Nelson Mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium. Sea of flags, wonderful moment for the whole of South Africa. We the images of this black, freshly elected president and the white Africana captain were beamed around the world, and it became a huge moment in South African history. But what people think about less often is that rugby in South Africa wasn't just a white sport belatedly embraced by non-whites, but it was a sport that had been played for generations by black and mixed race communities. So all the while there was a, a black South African culture of rugby? A huge culture, and it was centered in what is today called Eastern Cape province. And to better understand that, I visited a butchery in New Brighton, which is a township on the outskirts of the city of Port Elizabeth. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for me. And this butchery, they cook the meat for you so you can go and have a barbecue lunch. So I did that with the owner of the shop, a local rugby legend by the name of Zola Yeye. The first team, the oldest team, was established in 1887. It showed how old rugby has been and how, you know, way back we've been playing the sport. And to help me learn a little bit more about Township Rugby, he brought along two other former players, men by the names of Lucky Mange and Temba Ludwaba. Our rugby was tough, but then it was, it was a hope. So these us. men told me how important rugby was to their life in the township and how they had a real sense of ownership over the sport. That was something that was involved with the blacks mostly. Every Saturday, people were enjoying rugby. And how do they feel about that, that sense of ownership now, three, three decades after the end of apartheid? I got a real sense of bittersweetness from the trio. On one hand, they are incredibly proud of the young black players that have made it to the professional game and played for the Springboks. Sia Khaleesi, for instance, comes from Zwide, which is a township next to New Brighton. But he got his opportunity through being scouted by a posh, mostly white private school elsewhere in Port Elizabeth. And for them, this is a sign that the only way to make it is through that elite pipeline. By contrast, the township game itself has really disintegrated, so much so that nobody I spoke to 
in the Eastern Cape thought you could ever have a black springbok work his way up purely through the local school system and the local community game. And to understand how far things had fallen, I went to Dan Kwekwe Stadium, which is the historic home of black rugby. We're walking around the back of the stadium and then there's this building which doesn't have a roof anymore and there's no windows. Looks like it's been bombed. Yeah. So it looks like it, no, it looks like it could be in a war zone. Yeah, it's a war zone. I was totally shocked by the state of the stadium. I'd just been hearing about stories of thousands of spectators, people spending all day at the stadium, it really bringing the community together. But when I was there, the field was overgrown, it was strewn with weeds, the changing rooms had been ransacked, and almost most poignantly, you had a group of young, mostly male teenagers who weren't playing rugby at the stadium, but were smoking drugs, getting drunk, playing truant. So for me, it's not just the township game that has struggled, it's also the effect that the demise of the township game has had on the social fabric of the township. But there's a real divide here that those successes you see at the national level seemingly coming at the cost of the, the sport at the local level. It's complex. And perhaps the most complex thing of all in South Africa is racial reconciliation. The South African rugby team has done better than many institutions. It isn't the case that players such as Khaleesi are tokens. They're much more than that. And after a while where the rugby establishment didn't get it, in 2018, when Razi Erasmus became coach of the national side, you saw a decisive shift whereby the team didn't just start picking black players because of some government-mandated quota, but because the coaching staff realized there was an abundance of talent in the black game. Erasmus decided that the didn't have to be a trade-off between transformation and performance. The idea that you can combine racial reconciliation with excellence is central to the Springboks' popularity in South Africa and also its image outside. This came to a zenith at the 2019 World Cup, where Khaleesi, this black player from Zwede, this poor township in Port Elizabeth, he's hoisting the trophy above his head, and it's the most diverse team around him in South African history. When I was back in Paul, watching the game and listening to the incredible noise made by the crowd. It did make me think about what had and what hadn't changed since 1994. I think for all its problems, South Africa is undeniably in a better place. But it's also true that the changes at the top of society, whether in elite schools or in elite institutions like the Springboks, are far clearer than the changes at the bottom. So while I left Powell thinking, this town is changing for the better, I also worry that the townships of Port Elizabeth are changing for the worse. John, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. It's October the 5th, 1962. The very first Beatles record, the seven inch Love Me Do, a very simple record, appeared in the shops. John Higgs is a culture journalist and the author of the newly published Love and Let Die. And on the very same day, at the Cineplex down the road, the first Bond movie, Doctor No, appeared. My name is Bond, James Bond. Every aspect of what we now think of the Bond films just appeared fully formed. License to kill. It seems such an 
odd coincidence for them to both appear on the same day. But the timing was quite extraordinary because the country was hungry for a new version of itself, hungry for something that was modern. This is the years after the Suez crisis, where our understanding of ourselves, it used to be we were a great global power, Britannia rules the waves. That had finally gone, that had finally ended, but it left the question of, well, if we're not that, who are we now? And so for these two cultural monsters to appear on the same day, both seeming to represent Britain, it was just the perfect time for them to appear. I think because Bond and the Beatles have such a huge cultural footprint that they can't help sort of running into each other. So you get the scene in Goldfinger where Bond is slagging off the Beatles. Drinking Dom Perignon 53 above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. You also get people like Barbara Bach, the spy who loved me, one of the most successful Bond women in the franchise who was invited back to be in later films, who chose not to because she'd married Ringo Starr. Say live and let die. And of course, you have Paul McCartney's classic theme, Live and Let Die which is the least Paul McCartney lyric you've ever come across. The opposite of his values. But he's a craftsman, he was given the job. And boy, did he deliver. If you were to ask any surviving Beatle what it was about, they always say love. Love, love. It was all you need is love. It was the summer of love. It was from Love Me Do onwards. The Beatles were about opening yourself up to something larger and something better than yourself, getting away from sheer individualism. It's fascinating from a Freudian point of view. He talked of Eros and Thanatos, which are the two drives, love and death. Those are two defining impulses. The Beatles to represent love so strongly, it's only apt that Bond represents death. He has a license to kill. His films are Die Another Day, A View to a Kill, No Time to Die. So these two cultural monsters both represent opposing forces that define the struggle to be who we are and how we act in the world. Now, happy and glorious. Bond and the Beatles remain consistently relevant. Certainly if you look at, say, the 2012 London Olympic Games for the opening ceremony, to celebrate Britain, to present it to the world, you needed James Bond escorting the Queen, and you needed Paul McCartney at the end of it singing Hey Jude for a big sing-along. It's as we get further and further away, we start to realise just how extraordinary they both are and just how big their imprint is. People now talk about the Beatles and Shakespeare as the things that represent Britain. And it's odd for us because they're so homely. There's something quite domestic about them. It's folk music now. It's just the music that everybody knows. How Bond is going to change over the coming years will be fascinating. There are characters that you think are going to be around forever. Tarzan's a good example. That suddenly we come to a point where they just don't work anymore. 
The idea with Tarzan that if an upper-class child was placed in an African jungle, they would, by their innate qualities, become king of that jungle. Nobody wants that anymore. So there's a danger that maybe James Bond, as a state assassin, which made sense after the war, but these days the idea that a country has the right to go and kill people in another country is a lot more controversial. It's not heroic anymore. Bond, although he was terrific soft power to present Britain at its best, he's now been used to mock Britain. When Richard Moore, the head of MI6, gave a talk about Chinese spying, the Chinese state media produced a film called No Time to Die Laughing. The name is Pond, James Pond. And how's my lovely agent Black Window today? Simply spiffy. Are you still cross-dressing, Mrs. Doubtfire? She just mocked Bond as just this complete clueless idiot who was scared by Chinese phones and didn't understand what was going on. I think pop culture is a very important way to examine Britishness because most of our histories focus on power. Imagination can seem inconsequential compared to that. But it does affect the world because ideas create attitudes and attitudes create actions and actions create history. So if we want a full account of our history, if we want to understand who we are and how we've got there, the story of our imaginative life is as vital as the story of state power. You can read our review of Love and Let Die by John Higgs at economist.com. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.